It's with great pleasure that I introduce the first of today's speakers, uh, James Rafferty. From uh, he's doing a PhD at King's College, jointly supervised with UCL, uh, and he's talking to us today on Merleau-Ponty's uh, uh, "I Can in Global Paralysis: Life Writing Moving Without Movement." Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. Good morning. Um, I'm going to dive straight in. Um, so, the Edwin Smith Surgical Papyrus is a set of 48 hieroglyphic case histories dated to at least 1600 BCE. Case 33 posits that those who have become unconscious of their two arms and two legs are not to be treated. In his memoir of spinal cord injury, the actor Christopher Reeve laments how this belief has become conventional wisdom. The search for a cure for paralysis has never captured the public interest, writes Reeve, because it had always been considered impossible. In Reeves aside to this ancient text, we glimpse an insight into the ways that not being able to move gets conceptualised as beyond therapeutic possibility not to be treated. So this paper may be visualised as two opposing movements. I will read a work of paralysis life writing using Merleau-Ponty's inculcation of the ICANN. Then I will use this text to read back at Merleau-Ponty. Through this process, I want to help us more firmly grasp two shifts in the practice of originary philosophies that take place in Merleau-Pontian phenomenology. First, we see the privileging of a therapeutic self, a self that is always already seeking to move beyond itself to get better. A self, I might add, primed for biopolitical intervention. Second, we see how this therapeutic self entails not so much a notion of therapeutics, but emotion. This is the reverse side of Reeves' worry. Therapeutics become solely about movement. So to demonstrate this, I want to introduce the philosopher of dance, Maxine Sheets Johnson, Johnston, who uh, was very influenced by Merleau-Ponty. Um, and she lists seven reasons why movement is therapeutic. I'm going to list the first five. So movement is life-proclaiming. It validates and gives expression to an eye in the sense of agency, of capability. It prompts an awareness of our bodies. It allows us to deepen and complicate our relation with the world through dance or language. And it also institutes the ability to move more. Movement produces more movement. You get fit. Um, so my claim is that what enables therapy to be mapped onto movement uh, in these ways are a series of contemporary shifts in our understanding of bodily integrity which concepts like Merleau-Ponty's I can, the intentional arc, and substitutive equilibrium helped instantiate. But my concern is with the ways in which the, the experiences of people who are unable to move are subsumed into this logic of therapy, grounded in ceaseless and adaptive movement. And I wish to draw attention to phenomenology's ambition to draw out experiential equivalencies how very different experiences of not moving get caught up into the same moving ontological schema. So this paper can be thought of as a critical intervention into philosophical phenomenological accounts of movement. Okay. So, on Friday 8th of December 1995, whilst driving with his son after a day's work as editor of Elle magazine, Jean-Dominic Bowby suffered a stroke which severed his brainstem rendering him almost completely immobile, but totally cognizant for the rest of his life. 
Um, and Balby remained productive in these final years. He founded the Association of Locked-In Syndrome in March 97 and published what proved to be an immensely popular memoir with sales figures in the millions. Dictated through the blinking of his left eyelids, Le Scafandre à la Papillon was translated as the diving bell and the butterfly just a few months after Balby's death. It is tempting to read Balby's paralysis memoir as a dualistic tale in which the body exists as a prison from which the mind can occasionally escape. A 97 New York Times review declares the diving bell of Balby's title is his corporeal trap, the butterfly his imagination. And Casello and Di Paolo formulate how locked-in syndrome can institute this radical but crude challenge for theories of embodied cognition. Because cognitive function in locked-in syndrome patients is preserved, the body cannot be crucial for mental activity. How, we might, we might ask, does locked-in syndrome square with a philosophy that seeks to privilege the body or bodily movement as constitutive activity? Lisa Deirdrich resists a dualistic reading by noting that Balby insists the diving bell holds his body, not his mind, prisoner. She suggests that the diving bell does not signify a mind-body split, but, following Merleau-Ponty, a, a phenomenal objective body split. His phenomenal body is contained within an objective body, the diving bell, that then mediates his being in the world. We can investigate this claim by looking closely at how the text represents Balby's imagination. So, my mind takes flight like a butterfly. There is so much to do. You can wander off in space or in time, set out for Tierra del Fuego or for King Midas' court. You can visit the woman you love, slide down beside her and stroke her still sleeping face. You can build castles in Spain, steal the Golden Fleece, discover Atlantis, realise your childhood dreams and adult ambitions. So I think the text takes care in its use of verbs to assert the bodily capacity required for each of the escapist adventures evoked. Balbis does not just appear wherever he wants in time and space, but has to take flight, wander off or set out. The butterfly similarly is no disembodied witness, some kind of perceiver without a body, but an embodied presence that constantly metamorphoses so that it can, can attend to and interact with its environment, slide down beside, build castles, steal the golden fleece. His situation is made bearable by resorting to these metaphors of bodily movement. The text suggests that Balbi uncovered a similar insight to that of Merleau-Ponty's philosophy. A bodily can exists as integral to our imagination as well as our perception. Jessica Whiskus articulates this idea in her discussion of Merleau-Ponty's interest in Cezanne's artistic endeavours to catch the movements of perception. Cézanne sought to render the fecundity of a world that at every moment demands a complete response. This complete response is fulfilled by the privilege of having a body and being able to move that body. As Gail Weiss puts it, perceiving provides a tacit understanding of what our corporeal possibilities are at any given point in time. But these ideas are undergirded by another concept. When there is a loss of bodily possibility, this complete response does not go away. The body instead develops alternate strategies to articulate that complete response to the world. So I can only understand Deirdre's as reading The Diving Bell and the Butterfly as such an articulation. The text can be seen as a substitution, a tool that incorporates itself as Balby's mobile body. So we can illuminate the stakes here by turning to the case of anosognosia in paralysis. Um, anosognosia is a condition in which a patient denies the existence of their ailment. 
its clinical causes contested between psychodynamic interpretations, which consider anosognosia as a reaction aimed to protect the self from the potential distress derived from suffering, and more recent feed-forward theories, which suggest that anosognosia directly accompanies the brain lesion, that is, the ability to intend to make movements is lost with the body's inability to make those movements. But as Frith points out, feed-forward theories fail to account for how anosognosic patients can be very inventive in explaining away their inability not to move, uh, or their inability to move, rather. Patients might insist they have made movements when they have not, or claim that they're not moving for some other reason, um, laziness, nervousness, social propriety. Um, so um, imagine for a moment um, that a butterfly is fluttering past you, and you grabbed it, then with a tiny piece of string, tied two of its legs together and released it. The butterfly, though restricted, continued to walk, fly and flutter. It would adapt. Behind such a phenomenon of substitution, writes Merleau-Ponty, we discover the movement of being in and toward the world. And Merleau-Ponty considers anosognosia as exemplary in demonstrating this. He writes, what refuses the mutilation or the deficiency in us is an eye that continues to tend towards its world despite deficiencies or amputations, and that to this extent does not de jure recognise them. The refusal of the deficiency is but the reverse side of our inheritance in a world, the implicit negation of what runs counter to the natural movement that throws us into our familiar horizons. So Merleau-Ponty thinks anosognosia demonstrates the existence of natural movements, grooves upon which our bodily movements run. Here, Merleau-Ponty introduces his much-cited distinction between the habitual, um, phenomenal and actual objective body which underpins Deirdrich's reading of Balby. The habitual body with its natural movements acts as a kind of guarantor for, in the case of people who cannot move, an immobilised actual body. When the body stops being able to move or to interact with its world in some way, it retains the residual and habitual shadows of those natural movements that it developed when it could move. For this reason, and it is for this reason patients with anosognosic paralysis retain the belief that they can still move. Um, yet surely Balby's memoir believes in Balby's lack of mobility. The opening prologue outlines the laborious process that went in to the writing of the text. Balby composed his memoir by blinking his left eyelid to indicate what next letter should be transcribed to a bedside listener. The listener reads off an alphabet board until with a blink of his eye, Balby stops them at the letter to be noted. So he writes, my main task now is to compose the first of these bedridden travel notes so that I shall be ready when my publisher's emissary arrives to take my dictation, letter by letter. In my head, I churn out every sentence ten times, delete a word, add an adjective, and learn my text by heart, paragraph by paragraph. Immediately after learning this, however, we are told how a duty nurse interrupts the flow of Balby's thoughts. The text describes her well-established ritual. She draws the curtain, checks tracheostomy and drip feed, and turns on the TV so that Balby can watch the news. So the description of Balby's writing labour is instantly subverted by the description of a nurse's labour around his body. In the description of this interruption, the bodily writing labour has been immediately transformed and re-described as a flow of thoughts experiencing a situation. 
The text conceals its method of production the moment it has revealed them. In two paragraphs, what little bodily movement Balby has is transformed into a flow of thoughts, and what we have just told is a carefully crafted text, learned by rote, disappears into this flow. The final chapter, Season of Renewal, exemplifies this theme of textual production, exceeding itself. It is a scene of someone reading out these pages we have patiently extracted from the void every afternoon for the past two months. Yet the text is telling us about the scene of its own recounting. It creates the sense of existing outside of its own textual production. This ambiguity is derived, I think, from Merleau-Ponty's anisognosic impulse. The text imitates the natural movements of perception. It allows what little movement Balby has to flourish into transcendental movements, into language, springing forth an able moving self, and I can. By reading the memoir through Merleau-Ponty, we are able to see the text as a therapeutic strategy in which the act of describing the diving bell produces the movements of a butterfly. Uh, that's the end of that bit. Um, and now here's the next bit. Um, so I want to flip the gears the other way um, and consider Merleau-Ponty from the perspective of the text. Um, I want to consider, first of all, Sheets Johnston's criticism there we go. Um, that for all Merleau-Ponty is celebrated as being the preeminent philosopher of the body, he does not seem that interested in the tactile kinesthetic body, which comprises our existence. Her claim is that Merleau-Ponty's philosophical analysis departs from its phenomenological adherence to embodied experience. Surely, she insists, a philosophy of the lived body should attend to the self-groundedness of our body, its shape, its action, the way it feels to move. Why, she asks, does Merleau-Ponty never discuss his own <coughs> bodily experience and instead turn to clinical accounts of those encumbered by pathology? She retells an anecdote about Merleau-Ponty's visit to the Husserl archive. Usually a reserved man, Merleau-Ponty turns suddenly towards an English translator and animatedly declared how his study of Husserl's <coughs> ideas too had been an expérience presque voluptueuse, um, which I translate as like, a, 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 an almost sexy experience. If Merleau-Ponty's relationship to Husserlian materials are undergirded by such bodily sensuality, why does his philosophical response preclude this experience? Sheets Johnson believes Merleau-Ponty's ontological poetics, that's her term, resists its own fascinating personal history. Consequently, Merleau-Ponty is left without a coherent phenomenological method. His language distances him from his felt living body that touches and moves as a whole. So Sheets Johnston, um, sorry, no, I, I do not share. I disagree with Sheets Johnston's frustration here because I think Merleau-Ponty's ontological poetics relate to his pathological case studies, which he embeds within his philosophical argumentation. Merleau-Ponty's I can gestures towards an, uh, a network of movements that precedes the tactile kinesthesis of the body. It invites us to consider the body's logical and pathological conditions of possibility. The ICANN is a therapeutic before and after it is a bodily philosophical intervention. To demonstrate these claims, I would like to consider the way in which the phenomenology introduces the ICANN and how the ICANN relates to Merleau-Ponty's use of pathology. It is introduced into the text only after another concept is discussed. This is the intentional arc. Um, I think I won't, I won't read that out. Um, okay. uh, 
Yeah, I won't read that out. Um, um, but yeah, so but I, I think the point I want to make is that the intentional arc <coughs> extends the concept of intentionality into the body, into motor intentionality, but it also expands the concept into an all-encompassing account of the complexity of what it is like to live in that body, um, our future, our human milieu, our physical situation, and so on. Um, by extending and expanding intentionality into an all-encompassing arc, Merleau-Ponty draws attention towards the intertwined vulnerabilities of thinking, moving, speaking, living. The arc is a philosophical concept accounting not for how consciousness works, as is the want of many philosophical concepts, but for how consciousness can get sick. So Talia Welsh writes that pathologies disrupt the intentional arc, but Merleau-Ponty rarely characterises disorder as rupture, Instead, disorders alter the topography of the arc. It goes limp. It's a slightly odd translation by Landis because it's, uh, it's, it's detente, um, which I think is like a slackens. So if you like, I don't know, roll up a towel and pull it taut and then do that. That's the kind of, that's the verb in French. Um, sickness remains a complete form of existence for Merleau-Ponty to the extent that we can never fully be sick. This can be unpacked in terms of how we have seen that Balby's representation is always itself a movement, how representation is always simultaneously a depresentation. This is what the bodily I can substitutes for the Cartesian I think. I think therefore I am becomes I am therefore I think. Only this I am is, quoting Merleau-Ponty, the movement of transcendence of the I am. Thus movement becomes the condition of possibility of existence. The I can is mediated and sustained by movement, and specifically, this movement is a movement away from an I cannot. So as, as an example, Merleau-Ponty describes a blind person's cane as an instrument with which they come to perceive, an extension of their bodily synthesis. Unable to see, the blind person incorporates the cane within their schema. They adapt. Merleau-Ponty describes this as a new knot of significations in which previous... Sorry in which previous movements are integrated into a new, motor a new motor entity. What makes the emergence of this new knot possible is how it is anticipated in our experience through a certain lack. The blind person moves towards an equilibrium by moving away from the lack of their sightlessness. The arc explains how canes will turn up body parts, memories and ultimately texts can all be substituted for one another in the development of this equilibrium of self. Merleau-Ponty insists that this brings us to the essential point. It is neither true that my existence possesses itself, nor that it is foreign to itself, because it is an act or a doing, and because an act, by definition, is the violent passage from what I am to what I have the intention of being. The implicit assumption of many philosophers seeking originary subjectivities is that this subjectivity is healthy. Those who are positive starting points for subjective reflections have presumed tacitly that those starting points are well. In contrast, I think the I can transform static healthiness into a movement towards health and a movement away from vulnerability, a violent passage from sickness to health. So the I can is a therapeutic originary to the extent to which it can move. Um, so to conclude, memoirs of immobility provide us with the means to view illness life writing as not a representation of sick bodies, and I think but a therapeutics of six bodies, and I can. Phenomenological readings have tended to understand illness memoirs in two ways. Firstly, they have understood them as case studies that seek to describe events, 
attempts to capture rather than alter the thickness of experience. Secondly, they have failed to escape from a dualistic tendency to regard the phenomenal body of the text as in some way distinct from the objectified and immobilised body of medical treatments. What a Merleau-Pontian reading has allowed us to do is recognise the primacy of movement in and of the text. In the first case, by recognising the memoir as a movement rather than a static rendering of events, we can see the work that the text does in producing experience in the subject. In the second, movement allows us to see what is at stake in the relationship between passivity and activity. It allows us to resolve the dualistic contradictions by recognising how even the immobilised objective body of pathology can do work. It moves, adapts, is transformed in its telling and mobilises the very production of meaning which is threatened by disease. In the memoirs I study, this becomes especially clear as movement lives on in the still space of a body that cannot move. And Merleau-Ponty's work best accounts of this culturally sustained belief in the illegibility of not moving. And I'm going to really quickly uh, add that I have a very big back to this because what we, must all, we must also be critical of this therapeutics. Merleau-Ponty's phenomenological normativity might be helpfully characterised as a pseudo-normativity, a structure of meaning values which has to move and change in order to survive. We should be wary of a cultural primacy afforded to movement so total that not moving is always already writing itself out of existence. The conception of movement instantiated by Merleau-Ponty subscribes to a normativity that problematises and stigmatises six still bodies as illegible, even as it incorporates those bodies into its own legibility. Is this the inevitable price to move without movement? Thank you.